Hi, everybody. Welcome to Shasai Podcast, conversations between scholars from around the world who study childhood, youth, and related institutions historically. As an official production of the Society for the History of Children and Youth, you can subscribe to these shows through iTunes or Google Play. Written and visual materials associated with each episode are available at our website, shcy.org. Enjoy. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Sasha Hepburn, a historian of labor, gender, and age in modern Africa, based at Birkbeck College, University of London. And I'm joined today by my fellow Africanist, Emily Bridger. Welcome, Emily. Hi, Sasha. Thanks for for being here with me. Uh, I'm going to introduce you, Emily, to our listeners um, and uh, introduce the, the book that we're here to talk about. Um, So Emily is an associate professor in the Department of History at the University of Exeter. Her research examines gender, violence and memory, and her work to date has focused particularly on South Africa over the apartheid and post-apartheid periods. Today, Emily and I will be discussing her book, Young Women Against Apartheid, Gender, Youth and South Africa's Liberation Struggle. The book was awarded the Society for the History of Childhood and Youth's Grace Abbott Book Prize 2021. It also received the Royal Historical Society's Gladstone Book Prize 2022 and was shortlisted for the African Studies Association UK's Phage and Oliver Prize 2022. Congratulations, Emily. Thank you. Um, So to begin, I wondered if you could tell us um, a bit about the book and the inspiration behind it. Sure. Uh, So as the title suggests, uh, the book is about a group of uh, girls or young women in South Africa who, as teenagers and as school students, uh, decided to join the country's anti-apartheid struggle. Uh, So more specifically, it, it focuses on a period in South African history known as the Township Uprisings. Uh, which occurred uh, from about the mid-1980s through to the early 1990s. And this was a period um, at the very end of uh, the apartheid period in South Africa, when resistance against apartheid from within Black communities in the country uh, really started to escalate. And at the same time, this resistance was met uh, with increasing state repression, so with uh, apartheid police, Uh, and the military occupying many township communities um, and increasingly detaining and torturing anti-apartheid activists. So we already know um, that during these township uprisings, it was often very young people, often children, students, and youth, who were really at the forefront of these community struggles uh, and who very much became the vanguards of the liberation movement. And in South Africa, these young people are often collectively referred to as the comrades. Um, But in the existing historiography, these young activists have very much been um, assumed to have been an exclusively or predominantly male group, often written about um, in terms of, of assumed to be male characteristics such as bravery or militancy or or their willingness to use uh, force and violence. 
Um, so as, as elsewhere around the world, the term youth in this context has really come to exclusively mean uh, male youth. So uh, that's where kind of the inspiration from the book or for the book came from. Uh, the previous research on this period uh, had almost exclusively been conducted with male informants as well. Uh, and I found that no one was really looking into what was happening to girls and young women during this period. Uh, girls and female youth just, just weren't really present in the historiography at all, other than as kind of innocent bystanders, bystanders or perhaps as uh, victims of, of male violence. So the book really started out as uh, being a corrective to this male dominated history. Uh, but I think and I, and I hope that it's ended up being much more than this too. Uh, so the book's based on oral history interviews that I conducted with both um, male and female former youth activists. And it, it explores what life was like for black girls uh, under the apartheid state, why some chose to join the liberation struggle and how these girls navigated um, both the benefits and pitfalls that political activism could bring to young people uh, during these years. Um, so at the heart of the book really lies the life histories of these young women themselves uh, who tell us about their involvement in both nonviolent and violent forms of political action uh, and about their encounters with police and their time spent in political detention. But they also tell us about um, their broader lives and histories, about their families, their relationships, uh, and really about how it felt uh, to be a young activist. Thank you so much. I mean, I think one of the great strengths of the book is the richness um, and detail that you were able to provide about these young women's lives. And I wondered if you could tell us um, a little bit more about the research process. So what methodologies did you use? Um, what sources did you use to reconstruct this history? Sure. Um, so the book is very much a work of oral history. Uh, and I mean this in, in kind of two different ways. So first of all, the sources that the book draws on are predominantly uh, these oral history interviews that I conducted with both men and women uh, between 2014 and 2016. Um, and oral history interviews were really essential to this project because there simply are very limited archival records available about these young activists. Um, this is in part because these, these activists were secretly and illegally working against the apartheid state. Um, so they were thus very reluctant to commit anything from their meetings or about their strategies to paper in case uh, these documents uh, were found by the apartheid security forces. Um, and this archival lack is also due to the fact that the apartheid state itself destroyed much of its own archive um, in the years leading up uh, to the transition to democracy in South Africa in 1994. So the project really wouldn't have been possible uh, without these oral histories. Um, but what I try and do in the book and how I approach oral histories is, is to not only use them for the empirical information they provide, um, but also to analyze the, the subjective uh, qualities of these interviews. So the book is very much concerned with issues of memory and narrative. Uh, so it explores how these women now kind of in their 40s and 50s uh, reflect on and recall their time as activists, 
how they reconstruct their pasts um, from the particular positions uh, that they occupy in the present, um, how they relate their personal and individual experiences to uh, wider kind of collective memories or histories of the liberation struggle, and really how they use the interview itself uh, to try and insert themselves into this historical narrative from which they've, they've really largely been excluded. Fascinating. Could you talk to us more about this, that, that final kind of point you were making about memory and, and narrative? So what do you think um, you were able to achieve or, you know, bring to the historiography by exploring those issues, by exploring the subjective nature of oral history? Yeah, so for me, taking this approach to oral history uh, is really important. Um, I really believe that oral history is, is not just about what people did, uh, but it's about what they thought they were doing, what they wanted to be doing, or what they now in the present um, think they did or, or want people to think they did. So it really has all these different and, and very interesting layers to it. Um, and in the case of my book, I think that this approach really allowed me to explore um, some of the inconsistencies and unresolved tensions within these former youth activists' narratives. And it was really these inconsistencies that allowed the book to become much more than just a kind of corrective to, to male-centric historiography, um, but allowed it to also really challenge kind of broader uh, narratives of South African history and, and narratives of the uh, history of the liberation struggle in particular. Um, so for example, I found that women spoke very candidly uh, about how it felt to be a comrade, um, to be one of these young activists, but the feelings they described were often quite contradictory. Uh, so for example, you know, they would they would talk about kind of the rush and actually the intoxicating feeling of being involved in kind of the more violent or militant aspects of political activism, of throwing a petrol bomb, for example. Um, or they would talk about the pride and, and kind of sense of empowerment they felt in confronting police or the military uh, in township streets. But at the same time, uh, they would also speak about, about kind of contradictory feelings of guilt or remorse or uncertainty in their actions and kind of feelings they have in the present that maybe at times um, in the past as these young activists, they may have taken things uh, too far. Another example of these inconsistencies is uh, almost all the women I interviewed would um, kind of at first describe their male comrades, these young male activists as incredibly respectful towards them. And they would always insist that they were treated as, as complete equals within the uh, liberation struggle. But then later on in their interviews, these women would often talk about moments where they did experience disrespect, um, subordination, or even moments where they felt kind of violated by young male activists. So this was another one of these inconsistencies that really came, uh, came to the fore. And as I said, I think it's these inconsistencies um, and, and really bringing these to the fore, not trying to kind of hide them or resolve them, that helps the book to really challenge dominant narratives of the liberation struggle in South Africa. So I think what these women's overall memories show us um, 
is that, you know, this isn't kind of an unequivocal celebration of a, of a successful political movement or a war that was won. Um, women's memories are rather, you know, a much more kind of introspective and complicated tale of, of both kind of the benefits and struggles of being uh, a young female activist during apartheid um, and what this has meant for these women, both uh, at the time, but also in the three decades since. Um, and this approach and really trying to look at both kind of the past and present has also allowed me to kind of explore how for these women, their time as activists, even though it was kind of three decades ago now, um, that time really for them hasn't been consigned to the past, but it really continues to shape their everyday lives. Um, and equally their lives in the present, you know, what they're doing at the moment, what they think about the country, um, if they're struggling economically or politically or personally, these present struggles uh, really shape how they reflect on their pasts as well. So I think this allows for a much more kind of dynamic relationship between the past and the present, um, and also between uh, individual memory and kind of collective memory. Thank you so much for, for going into that deeper. Um, I mean, listening to you talk, I am struck by the multiple um, things that you were juggling when you were writing this book. So the past and the present, the political and the private, um, and I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about how you how you decided to structure the book so that you could explore and and and, and address all of those different things in a coherent way um, and take us through that that allowed the reader to kind of go through this this story with you. Yeah, um, that was definitely a struggle um, and finding a structure for the book that worked uh, took a really long time, took years, in fact, um, because I think kind of the most obvious thing to do maybe was structure it chronologically. Um, but that, yeah, didn't make it possible to do this kind of constant comparison between the past and the present or, or keeping that relationship dynamic. Um, and also I found that my interviewees narratives themselves often weren't chronological um, and furthermore kind of dates and, and any sort of linear narrative wasn't really what mattered most to them. And often their stories would kind of jump around uh, temporally. So ultimately um, I decided to organize the book according to space um, rather than time. So the book's chapters take the reader through the multiple and overlapping spaces that these girls um, occupied as young activists. So we start with uh, the school, which was where most of these girls uh, were first kind of exposed to politics and became mobilized into the liberation struggle. We then move to the home, um, which I argue is actually an important space of struggle. And, and I look there at kind of the um, these girls' wider uh, relationships and, and how those were affected by their politicization. There's then a chapter on the, the political meeting um, where I explore kind of uh, the ideology of, of these um, student and youth groups in more depth. Then a chapter on the street, which is all about the kind of um, public activism and political violence uh, that these young men and women engaged in predominantly on township streets. And then there's a chapter on the prison cell, 
which focuses on these girls' um, experiences of being detained um, in police stations uh, and apartheid prisons. And then I've added in a final chapter on uh, the interview. Um, so this isn't a physical space, um, but in this chapter, I reflect on kind of the interview itself as a space for uh, remembering, uh, for kind of seeking composure. Um, and it's really in this final chapter on the interview where I try and bring out um, those, those kind of relationships between the past and, and the present and the individual and the collective uh, more fully. Um, and I think ultimately this kind of spatial organization of the book um, helps us to expand our view of kind of who counts as a political activist and also what actions count as political activism. Um, so I wanted to see these young people really as kind of complete human beings, not just as activists, um, but to acknowledge that simultaneously they are children, they're students, they're siblings, they're community members. Um, and so the structure and particularly bringing in these chapters on kind of the home and the school um, allowed me to demonstrate how um, all of these different spaces, both private and public, were really crucial political spaces. Uh, and that also allowed me to kind of challenge any neat binary between uh, the private and the public um, that often characterize political histories. One thing that strikes me, Emily, in reading the book was that in blurring that boundary between um, public and, and private spheres of, of township politics, the book brings the home, family dynamics, um, the everyday burdens of domestic labour into, into the story. And I wondered if you could reflect on the importance of the home um, and of domestic struggles to the history of girls' anti-apartheid activism. Yeah, thanks. It became apparent to me that this was incredibly important. One of the first differences I noticed in my interviews with women versus in my interviews with men is that women did speak um, a lot more about um, kind of family dynamics and family relationships within the home and also about their kind of domestic duties um, as girls within the home and how um, these dynamics could both motivate them towards towards political action um, and also kind of hold them back from becoming activists. Um, so I think this idea that political activism is something that only occurs in the public sphere has really hidden from view how for girls, I think in particular, more so than boys, their politicization is often shaped by the, both the kind of gendered and the generational power dynamics of the home. Um, so what became apparent from my interviews that there was really no neat boundary or separation between a young person's political and non-political or private and public lives. Um, so as I mentioned earlier, I, I really wanted to see these activists not just as activists, but also in terms of all the other identities they occupied um, kind of across their daily lives. So as, as people's children or siblings, um, as neighbors and community members, as um, uh, kind of domestic laborers within the household. Um, and it was for these female comrades in particular, I found um, that these kind of dynamics and relationships of the home really shaped their activism. 
Um, so this was really well demonstrated actually in one, um, in the narrative of one of my interviewees, uh, a woman named Zanelle. So Zanelle, when she was growing up, she lived with and was raised by her grandparents as many uh, children were in South Africa during this time. Um, and as uh, many girls in this era did, um, she was expected to cook and clean in the evenings after school and generally kind of take care of the, of the domestic chores within her grandparents' household. Um, but as she increasingly became involved in the liberation struggle, um, she really struggled to keep up with her chores. She was attending meetings after school in, in the evenings and her, her cooking and her cleaning um, suffered because of this. Um, and as a result, she was actually regularly beaten by her grandmother and, and really regularly chastised by her grandmother for kind of failing to, to live up to the expectations of, of a good girl or a good daughter. Um, and eventually things got even worse in, in her relationship with, relationship with her grandmother. Um, her grandmother forbid her from staying at home um, because her activism was drawing the attention of the apartheid police. And her grandparents were afraid that the police would come and raid their home. Um, so Zanelli at this point was, was basically left homeless and was kind of sleeping wherever she could to avoid police detection. And she talked about this um, kind of in contradictory ways. In some ways, she was really proud at kind of rebelling against her grandparents and rebelling against these very gendered norms that it was girls' duty to, to cook and to clean and, and not become involved in politics. Um, but she also spoke about how hard this was and, you know, the damage this did to, to her family and her relationship with her grandparents. Um, and she talked about how much she missed her grandparents during these years um, and, and the kind of really personal struggles that that caused for her. And, and these sorts of dynamics I found um, were just much more present in, in the interviews I did with women uh, rather than the interviews I did with men and were really an integral part of their story about um, becoming activists. And so I think that this chapter on the home um, is, is really an essential part of the book. And it's, it's a side to um, kind of histories of youth activism in South Africa that, that very rarely gets told. Thank you, Emily. And just to pick up on something um, that I was struck by listening to you talking about Zanelli is um, her relationship with her grandmother, um, these gendered and generational tensions within the household. Um, and I wondered if we could talk a little bit more about the book's exploration of the relationship between gender and generation. Um, so thinking about these female activists, to what extent do you think um, they were motivated by their gendered identities as, as girls, as, as, as women, um, and by their generational identities as youth. Um, how did they kind of overlap or, or you know, were they distinct? Um, and when we're thinking about um, female activists, uh, should we be characterizing them in terms of them being young women, girls, youth, um, or kind of fitting into both of those both of those groups yeah um great question thank you i think it really is important to look at both these um gendered and generational aspects and to see their intersections rather than to see them as kind of separate categories um 
So initially the book very much argues that we need to see these girls and young women as part of the broader category um, of youth. So um, for many of the women that I interviewed, it was really their generational identities that were more important to them um, in these years rather than their gendered ones. They very much saw themselves as comrades or as youth rather than as girls or as women. Um, and they really insisted that they wanted to participate in the struggle alongside young men rather than separately from them. So they purposefully joined um, these student and youth organizations, uh, which were very much focused around kind of youth um, issues and the youth perspective, rather than joining women's organizations. And they, and they generally actually kind of rejected the idea of organizing separately as women. Um, and they even went as far to talk about, you know, being without a gender during these years. Um, although by this, I think really what they meant was kind of assuming certain characteristics of, of kind of masculinity. Um, you know, they talked a lot about wearing trousers um, instead of skirts, which was um, not common for girls at the time and, and kind of rejecting um, anything that could be seen as kind of a frivolity of, of girlhood. Um, and so when I initially asked people why they joined the struggle, I found that both men and women gave quite similar answers. And their answers really reflected the kind of daily inequalities that they faced because of their, their age um, and how this intersected with their race and class. Um, so for example, you know, they, they resented being corporally punished at school um, and, and sitting in these kind of poorly resourced, dilapidated classrooms. Um, they were frightened by the apartheid soldiers who patrolled their streets. They were struggling to pass their exams and they knew that even if they did pass, um, they had very few job opportunities waiting for them. Um, so really, I think for both young men and young women, becoming involved in politics offered them kind of a sense of purpose and a sense of agency, uh, a political education and, and even feelings of enjoyment and belonging. And I really argue that we need to, to expand the category of youth and youth activism to kind of automatically include girls as well as boys during these years. But on the other hand, um, the book also argues that, that both these groups, um, male activists and female activists, all acted as, as gendered beings. They, you know, despite saying that to become a comrade, you kind of had to be without your gender. Uh, of course, in reality, that's kind of not really possible. Um, and I found in particular that the inequalities that these girls faced um, kind of growing up as, as black girls during apartheid were particularly gendered and that it was actually often these gendered inequalities that also motivated them to join the struggle. Um, so as I've mentioned, girls really tended to bear the burden of domestic work during these years and they realized that this was kind of um, an inequality they were experiencing. Also at this time, girls were typically subjected to, to really high levels of sexual harassment and sexual violence that instilled in them, you know, feelings of fear uh, and insecurity. Often girls, um, their freedom of movement was limited by kind of parental and societal expectations of what it meant to be a good girl. Um, they simply didn't have the same kind of freedoms as boys enjoyed. And they were really, um, you know, raised um, to understand that they were kind of second-class citizens in comparison to boys and that um, they were inferior to them. 
So I think for these young women, joining the struggle was both about rebelling against apartheid, but also rebelling against um, some of these kind of gender norms. Um, it wasn't just about fighting the injustices they faced as young people or as students, but also about fighting the particular vulnerabilities they faced as young women. Um, and I think in particular, becoming an activist really offered girls um, quite a radical departure from these feelings of subservience or victimhood that were so often instilled in them as young women. And to understand this, I think we have to really focus on how these gender inequalities intersected with these generational uh, inequalities um, that all youth experienced at the time. I mean, listening to you talk, Emily, you know, in answering that question, but also throughout this podcast, it will have become very clear to the listeners um, that the book deals with a number of sensitive themes, um, including themes of, of sexual harassment, sexual violence, um, as well as being a work of, of oral history. Um, and I wondered if we could return to thinking about the research process and, 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 and talk about challenges and, and difficulties that you encountered in writing the book. Yeah, so I, th I think the biggest challenge I faced in the writing process was how to write about violence. Um, and what I found the most difficult was actually writing about um, these women's involvement in political violence themselves. Um, so the chapter which focuses on the street as a space, um, as I said, explores these, these young activists' involvement in um, kind of street-based uh, political confrontations and, and various acts of political violence. So this ranged from kind of confronting police with, with rudimentary weapons such as stones. Um, it involved using petrol bombs um, against kind of suspected apartheid collaborators and also punishing um, local community members who were seen in various ways to be kind of jeopardizing the struggle or, or who were seen as kind of apartheid sellouts. Um, and I found it very difficult to write about these narratives. Um, the women I interviewed in particular spoke about their involvement um, in political violence really openly and, and candidly. Um, so I had lots of material on this, but, but obviously writing about it required a great deal of sensitivity um, and also some quite difficult ethical considerations. Um, because for the most part, the people I spoke to really, it was very important to them to have their real names used in the book. They very much felt that they'd been written out of history and they wanted to kind of claim their roles in this um, important historical narrative. Um, so not all, but, but the majority wanted their real names used. Um, but when it came to writing about their involvement in violence, um, I, I didn't want them to to be identifiable uh, for obvious reasons. So I, I really struggled with the decision of kind of how to go about that. Um, and in the end, in the book, um, <clears throat> those interviewees who wanted to have their real names used, they're identified um, only by their first names um, throughout the book. And then in sections where I do talk about um, their involvement in political violence, 
they're they're kind of anonymized so that those sections can't be tied um, to particular interviewees. Um, but those narratives of violence were, you know, they they came up in almost every interview I did with women, and they were clearly so important to women's stories that um, I didn't want to exclude them from the book. I knew they had to be included, but but doing so was difficult. Um, and I think more broadly, too, um, it, it's really that aspect of the book, this focus on kind of girls' involvement as, as perpetrators of political violence, that's been the most difficult for some people to hear or to read. Um, I think some people are clearly kind of made uncomfortable by even the idea that a teenage girl can willingly participate in violent action. Um, but again, I, I really thought it was important in the book to kind of challenge that accepted relationship between gender and violence and between women um, and passivity. Uh, yeah, so I think I think overall that was the kind of biggest challenge that I faced. And if we can think about um, the field um, more broadly, um, thinking about girlhood, um, particularly girlhood, childhood and youth in, in South African history, I wondered if you could reflect a little about, you know, what remains unknown? Um, what further research do you think is needed in those areas? Yes, so there's been such phenomenal work um, done on the continent in terms of African girls' histories, um, really over the last kind of 10 years. Um, the work of people like Abbasetti George uh, in Nigeria, um, Sarah Duff, uh, a colleague of mine who also works on South Africa, um, and, and Sasha, your own work, of course, on the, on the history of girls uh, in Kenya and Zambia. Um, in South Africa, it's interesting. I, I found that the kind of neglect of girls in most of the historiography in South Africa um, was actually more severe than it was in a lot of other African countries, which was surprising just because South Africa, um, you know, it does receive so much attention from, from academics and from researchers. Um, and I think the biggest gap there that remains is in trying to access um, non-political girlhood. Um, so, you know, if such a thing exists, trying to access kind of normal or everyday um, experiences of girls' lives in the past. Um, and this is just incredibly difficult because um, of a lack of archival sources. Um, and also because I think it's, it's more difficult to find oral history interviewees when you're not looking for a particular group of, of women or girls. Um, so in my case, you know, I could narrow down interviewees to people who'd been active in these student and youth political organizations during apartheid. But I think it's actually much more challenging when you're doing oral history to try and access any sort of kind of everyday um, or normal experience. Um, so the girls that I write about in this book definitely aren't the norm. Um, the choices they made to join the liberation struggle and to really dedicate their, their teenage years to activism were very much unconventional for young women at the time. And I think we need to be careful not to define all experiences of kind of South African girlhood during apartheid um, in this way. Okay, um, I absolutely hear what you're saying about the challenges of exploring everyday life through oral history and, and, and when people are members of organisations. I definitely encountered that in my own research. Um, 
to to finish i wondered emily um i know you're working on a new project um i wondered if you could tell us how that connects to um or if it connects to this book yeah thank you so i am working on a a, a new and uh much bigger uh project um so i currently um run a, a research project called south africa's hidden war uh, histories of sexual violence from apartheid to the present. And this project is really an attempt to um, historicize sexual and gender-based violence in South Africa. Um, I think people around the world um, generally know that, that South Africa today struggles with very high rates of, of rape and sexual violence. It's often um, kind of labeled by the media as one of the world's rape capitals. Um, but actually, we don't know much about the longer histories of sexual violence in the country, particularly over, over the apartheid period. Um, and this project really emerged directly from the research that I did uh, for the book in really two key ways. One, um, in, in my interviews, and also in some of the archival material that's used in the book, I found that girls, particularly of this generation, so girls who were kind of growing up in the 1970s and 1980s, um, talked quite a lot about their fears of sexual violence um, and kind of how they constantly felt vulnerable to this violence um, in all aspects of their lives. You know, when they were at home, when they were at school, when they were walking around township streets. Um, and this really struck me as a, you know, it was clearly an, an important part of these women's life histories. Um, but that wasn't something that was kind of acknowledged in the historiography. Um, and the second inspiration for this new project that came from the book was um, quite a few of the women I interviewed um, actually told me about how as kind of under the umbrella of their, of their role as activists, one of the things they did was um, kind of identify suspected rapists in their communities and actually seek these men out and physically punish them um, by kind of giving them public beatings. Um, I write about that a little bit in the book and I've written about that separately um, in, a, in an article in the Journal of Southern African Studies. So that as well really motivated the new project in terms of I'm now trying to explore much more fully um, the various kind of strategies um, women and their wider communities have used over the apartheid period to try and respond to um, or limit sexual violence um, at a time when the state was, was really doing very little to address the problem. Well, I, Emily, I can't wait to see how that project develops. Um, I greatly enjoyed your article in uh, the Journal of Southern African Studies, and I'm looking forward to seeing further articles and, and maybe a future book project coming <laughs> out of that. Um, well, I think all that remains is to thank you for um, this wonderful discussion and to urge our listeners to get a hold um, of uh, your book. Um, so the hardback is available now, and I believe a paperback version is going to be available in March 2023. Um, so thank you, Emily. Thank you so much, Sasha. Thank you for listening to Shusai Podcasts. You can find more materials and features from the Society for the History of Children and Youth online. shcy.org.